you see God on the move. It's always a thrill when you see God on the mood, move, and uh, it's good to uh, be with you today. Let me just mention in regard to tonight, our world is in a, uh, it's in a time period when it seems like it's spinning out. It seems like everything is upside down, everything is backwards, and uh, it can get very fearful if you focus on it <laughs> too long. What should our response be? And we'll look at a biblical response tonight uh, in the message. I wanted to mention that to you. But for now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the Word of God. And we look at a verse that has a wonderful truth in it. And may the Lord speak this to our hearts this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will read verse 18. Hope you have your Bible. And uh, this is an amazing book. It's a book that deals much with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see right here in this chapter. And uh, let's look at verse 18. The inspired word says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, it would be a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now we sang just a moment ago, with longing all my heart is filled that like him I may be. Okay, so here it says, and here it says that with open face that we behold in a concept that's like looking into a mirror and there we behold the glory of the Lord. And when this happens, we are changed into the same image. That's got to mean something. From glory to glory, there's somehow an upward spiral this side of heaven. And how does all this happen? It says in the final phrase, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed into the image of Jesus. I want to speak this morning on the Jesus glow. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher. Blessed Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're still as real as you've ever been and always been. Would you take of what is Christ and show him unto us. Lord, that even in these very moments, we might behold the glory of the Lord and experience that marvelous transformation. But give us an understanding of this text and how this works in just simple life throughout the week. Oh, Lord, may the reality of this, this glory of the Lord shining in your people be evermore present in our lives. So, Lord, I plead the blood to protect us from the attack of the enemy. He certainly doesn't want us to get a hold of this. And so, Lord Jesus, we claim our position in you on the throne far above the enemy. And in your name, that is above all names, we exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to get in the way and hinder and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, breathe on us now. Touch us now. Make this service count for your name's sake. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was preaching in the country of South Africa, and we were up in the, uh, an area of the country uh, called Venda, and a little town called Mashamba that was just west of the border of what they call Kruger Park. Now, Kruger, Kruger Park is a game park. It's a jungle. It's about the size of the state of Vermont or the nation of Israel, since that's in the news these days. And uh, that's, that's a big jungle. And on the other side of it uh, would be the country of Mozambique. And uh, when I was there, this was late 90s, uh, they... Uh, uh, at the time, they had uh, refugees pouring through that jungle. I shouldn't say pouring through, but uh, coming through that jungle from Mozambique, getting uh, uh, into South Africa in hopes of getting to Johannesburg, in hopes of a better life. 
but there's risk, obviously, in traveling on foot through a real jungle. In fact, the pastor there told me, he said that uh, he recently had talked with a lady who was weeping as she came out of the jungle. She said, I started with five children. I've come out alone. She lost them all. Desperation. We see desperation throughout our world today. And uh, in an area of the world like this, you've got you to get a picture of what's happening because uh, it's different than what we have here in the USA. I remember the first time going into that village, the uh, uh, pastor took us by the open marketplace, which would be the only marketplace, and we bought, he, uh, he, he bought two live chickens to drop off at the chief's house on the way into the village. Now, when I came into town yesterday, I did not drop off two live chickens with your mayor. <laughs> that's not how we do it, but this is how they do it. Now, in, the, in this village, uh, the vast majority of these people... Uh, do not have electricity at all. Now, I've been in parts of the world where they have it like, you know, maybe two or three hours a day and it goes in and out and all that kind of stuff, uh, kind of like Michigan, but uh, whatever. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, this is where they just don't have it. The chief might, maybe one or two higher-ups, but that's it. They don't have it at all. And uh, that means they don't have plumbing. Try to imagine that. You know, life without running water. And uh, most of the uh, floors in these dwelling places were, were, were earth. They were earthen floors. Again, kind of like a Michigan basement. But in Michigan, it's the basement, not the main level. This was the main level. And uh, obviously, there was no basement. And uh, some of the people had a cement floor. I stayed at the pastor's house. He grew up in that village and was saved and called to preach, been trained, came back, started a church. And uh, his house had a cement floor, so we slept on the floor. Nothing wrong with that. Had our blankets, slept on that floor. Got up in the morning. Now, the average American is used to maybe taking a shower, you know, get cleaned up, ready for the day. Well, it's not going to happen. There's, there's no shower. There's no running water. Uh, I did notice that outside the house there was a barrel where somebody had hauled up some water and they would bring in a bowl full at a time into a little room that was like a restroom. That was not a restroom. The restroom was one of those <laughs> outdoor kind. Uh, but uh, this was a little room where they would put this bowl of water. And uh, you could go in there when it was your turn and, and get cleaned up and ready for the day. Well, when it was my turn, I walked in and I took a look around. And there was no mirror. And, uh, you know, the average American is used to looking at the mirror, you know, to get cleaned up and ready. And I realize some look at it longer than others, but uh, uh, most uh, you know, at least a quick glance to make sure things are not in total disarray. Well, that's not going to happen. They don't have a mirror. Uh, but I've learned in my travels, you always bring a little travel mirror. So I pull out my trusted little travel mirror, and it's small, and I stuck it on a windowsill, so it's slanted and cocked. But I, you know, I combed my hair, got uh, ready for the day the best I could. Uh, then, a few hours later, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to 500 secondary students at a uh, high school, uh, 500 teenagers. It was, oh man, what a joy, just what an absolute joy. And uh, they did not have an auditorium like this, nothing of the sort. And so we met outside in an open courtyard. And to my amazement, these 500 students stood. They didn't sit on the grass, they stood the entire time that I preached. At attention, listening, not messing around, and not looking elsewhere. Now, I was mindful of the fact that they were standing, so believe it or not, I kept it on the shorter side. <laughs> and uh, if you think I'm going too long this morning, you just stand up, <laughs> and I'll probably keep going. But uh, at any rate, so they're, they're listening, and I'm preaching away. Well, the missionary's got to get pictures, you know. I've got to send pictures back to the home churches, you know. So he's behind me, and you've got these 500 faces, you know, looking up. And he's behind me, you know, and I'm in the picture, you know, preaching away. And uh, then they got the film developed. Remember when we used to develop film? <laughs> and uh, so that took a couple of days. And uh, I'll never forget this. They showed me the picture. 
and the hair on the back of my head <laughs> was sticking straight out. Now, my, my mother used to call it rooster tails. Uh, my wife calls it bedhead. Well, whatever you want to call it, it was a bad hair day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I remember looking at that picture thinking, oh, man, don't I have any friends? <laughs> but who knows? Maybe it looked like some new American hair, <laughs> a newfangled hairstyle. <laughs> who knows? Well, have you ever been in a setting where you needed a mirror, but you couldn't find one? Have you ever tried the back of a spoon? But all you see is your nose. <laughs> and with a Dutch nose like mine, that's kind of disconcerting. <laughs> but uh, uh, I've, I've had to do that a time or two. I remember one time I needed a mirror, and I couldn't find one anywhere. And I thought, oh, man, I need to catch a reflection. And then I saw a metal doorknob. <laughs> so when nobody's looking, I'm looking at the doorknob, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to catch a reflection. But it was dull, and it was frustrating because I could not catch a clear Reflection. Now, in our text, I already pointed out the word glass is the concept of a mirror. We're going to see that God intends for his people to be like a mirror that reflects the glow, the glory of the Lord. Now, as I've mentioned, our world is spinning out right now. Things are upside down and things are so uh, backwards. And, and it's amazing the, uh, um, the bizarre things that people are doing to themselves right now. But it shows that there is an aching void in the heart of human beings. And people are searching, searching in the wrong places, but they're searching. We need to remember that. And along the way, they may come across you or me. And they may hear that we call ourselves a Christian. In fact, a born-again Christian. Now, you and I may not be aware of it, but I am convinced that there are many times when there are individuals that are looking at us. I mean, they are looking at us to see if there's any reality of him. Now, I want to ask this morning, what did they see? Or better stated, who did they see? Is it just us? Or is there that reflection? Is there that glow? That glory, that radiance, that aura, that fragrance, where there is in that spiritual dimension, in that spiritual realm, an actual contact with Jesus. In other words, are we aglow with Jesus? Is the beauty of Jesus shining? Now, what are we talking about? What does that mean? And how does it happen? Well, this morning, I want to do something different than the typical homiletical approach uh, to preaching, uh, you know, three points in a poem or something like that. I want to do what they called 100 years ago, a Bible reading. Now, it's more than just reading the scripture around our text. It's looking, however, at the context and trying to allow the context to shed light on our opening thought here. So back up with me, please, if you would, to chapter 3 and verse 4. The text says, in such trust, there's faith, have we through Christ to God words? Okay, we're talking about faith in God. Now notice verse 5. It's not a definition. It's a description of faith. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of, that is from, ourselves. But our sufficiency is of or from God. Now, may I remind us, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Of course, he's writing under inspiration. But it is the Apostle Paul. And he says, look, we are not sufficient. We are not adequate for anything. Now, that grates against our ego. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual realm. See, flesh can't do spirit. And he's saying that we're not sufficient. See, it's just this is what lost people, it's what unsaved people stumble over sometimes in the matter of salvation. They want to be sufficient. They want to achieve heaven. They want to earn their way. The only problem is the standard for heaven is God. And only God meets the standard of God. And that's why we need the righteousness of Jesus to somehow legally be imputed over to our account. It's called justification. Why? Because only God meets the standard of God. And try as we may, we don't come close. I remember talking to a dear lady, sincere lady, religious lady, East Ohio, and uh, she was an older lady, and she had been very religious, and I'm sure a moral person and all of that, and uh, she was trying to earn her way to heaven. And I was seeking to show her, look, the standard for heaven is God. <laughs> And that's why you need Jesus. That's why he came. And she said, you're not giving me any credit. <laughs> well, that's the point. Now, if you're here today and you're saved, you've come to grips with this. Salvation is through Jesus alone. It's by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Okay, your sins are forgiven. His righteousness is credited to you, and he, he moves in. But you know, if we're not careful, we get justified by faith, and we go back to sanctification by self-effort. And we forget that even in sanctification, only God meets the standard of God. See, just as we need imputed righteousness, credited righteousness, in justification, we need imparted righteousness in sanctification because only God meets the standard of God. Friends, it's not a matter of us mimicking motions. Somehow, there has to be the impartation of divine life, where the divine someone that has moved into a human someone at salvation is imparting that divine life, so that, yes, it's our personality, but there's a divine life, there's a divine aura, there's a divine radiance, the beauty of Jesus shining through. Otherwise, it's just us and the flesh profits nothing. But he goes on to say here at the end of the verse, but our sufficiency, our adequacy is of God. See, we're not left on our own. We're uh, in this wonderful reality in New Testament Christianity where Jesus, by his spirit, moves in to impart the very life of Jesus. When we access that life, look at verse 6, who also hath made us able ministers. He's not talking about human ability. He just said we're not sufficient. But when we depend on God's sufficiency, remember faith was in verse 4, when we trust him, his leadership, his power, then there is a supernatural enablement that takes place who also have made us able, in other words, supernaturally enabled ministers of the New Testament. Now look, it's not just talking about preachers. It's talking to every child of God. You have the privilege, in fact, responsibility to be a supernaturally enabled minister of New Testament truth. But let's read on here. Not of the letter. We often refer to the letter of the law. But of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's not talking about an attitude. An attitude can't give life. It's the Holy Spirit, as we see in the context here, who gives life. But isn't this amazing? The letter even of God's law, which is holy and just and good, according to Romans 7, without the Spirit, however, it kills. Have you ever wondered why Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, I came not unto you in word only. 
Yes, he came with the word. <laughs> but he said, I came not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. You see, the deal here is we need the word and the spirit. Now, what the enemy tries to do is to get us off on one or the other. So there are some who upplay the spirit. That's a good thing. But they downplay the word. That's a bad thing. Uh, because when that happens, pretty soon you're leaving the boundaries of the word of God and you're, dece you're deceived. And that deception leads to what we sometimes call strange fire. There are others who say, man, I don't want that strange fire stuff. So what they do is they upplay the word. That's a good thing. But they downplay the spirit. That's a bad thing. Because the letter without the spirit, word only, it says kills. It's the spirit who gives life. So that leads to deadness, killing. <laughs> That's no fire. Now, friends, I don't want strange fire. It, it, it's hurt people. But I'm going to tell you something. No fire is not the answer to strange fire. People say, well, I don't want a false experience. I'm going to tell you, no experience is another false experience if you're a child of God. God wants us to understand there's the Word and the Spirit, and that is dynamic. Dynamic. It's igniting, and it leads to Holy Spirit revival fire. Well, let's read on. Verse 7, but if the ministration, that's your word ministry, of death. Now, that's an odd phrase, don't you think? The ministry of death. You ever notice that? Hey, what's your ministry? Well, I have the ministry of death. <laughs> yeah, there's two or three in every church. <laughs> Should have said that, but it's sometimes true. <laughs> well, what's it talking about here when it says ministry of death? Well, let's read on. Written and engraven in stones. Now, friends, that's the Ten Commandments. Written by the finger of God in stones, hewn by the hand of God. And yet it's called the ministry of death. Why? It's because, according to verses like Romans 5.20, the law has no power to help you obey it. That's not its purpose. The law is to show you when you disobey it. In other words, the law does not remove sin. The law reveals sin and condemns it. And thus, it's a ministry of condemnation, or as it says right here, a ministry of death. But now notice it says it's glorious. It is God's law. It is holy. It is just. It is good. And we read on here, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. And you remember when God, uh, uh, when Moses met with God on the mountain, there was that occasion when he came back down and he was radiant. So radiant with an actual physical radiance that he had to put a veil over his face. Can you imagine? It's pretty powerful. That was all in conjunction with the giving of the law. It was glorious. But now notice the contrast in verse 8. How shall not the ministration, the ministry of the Spirit, be rather, which is the idea of more glorious? When Andrew Murray, his family was from Scotland, they went to South Africa, 1800s. When he became the church on... Uh, the town square of the town of Worcester, South Africa. The year was 1860. And the first text that he preached on was this text. How 
thou shalt not the ministration, the ministry of the Spirit, be rather or more glorious. And it's an amazing story, uh, the intercession that led up to what happened. But that church, within a, uh, within a few weeks, was in a full-blown revival. I mean, outpouring of the Spirit level of revival. And uh, it was spilling over to the community. It was spilling over to the region. It spilled over to the nation. In our revival history books today, it is known as the Great Revival of 1860. It shook a nation. It was powerful. And again, the intercession that led up to that and all that happened, it's a, it's a remarkable story. But when that happened, they had services like this that would just keep going. <laughs> and they often went till 3 o'clock a.m. Now, these were Dutch Reformed people. Let me tell you, when a Dutch Reformed goes beyond one hour, you know God's on the move. <laughs> now, I can say this because my name is Van Gelderen and my... my <laughs> Roots, a few generations back, are Dutch Reformed. But uh, God was doing something. And the services would go on and on. And, and time was lost. Now, I've been in some services where, you know, the first 10 minutes seems like 10 hours. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but why is it when God's on the move, 10 hours seems like 10 minutes? You know why? It's because God is the I am. And when his presence is felt, you're in the presence of no time. The I am. And so they would have these services that would roll on and, and they would often dismiss at 3 a.m. Now, you don't have to have a service go to 3 a.m. to say you've had revival. It doesn't happen in every story. That's an incident. It's a glorious incident. But nonetheless, uh, that doesn't happen in every story. But it is pretty neat, don't you think? And do you know that we're told that when they would dismiss at 3 o'clock in the morning, they would sing their way through the streets on the way back to their house. Can you imagine singing your way boldly through your neighborhood at 3 a.m. and not being drunk? You know, there's a glory, isn't there, in a story like this? They had so met with God, so caught up with God, so rejoicing in God, so thrilled with God. All oh, that thrills my soul was Jesus was so real. They're singing their way. I mean, that'd be stunning at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, much less in the middle of the night. I mean, we sang all that throws my soul is Jesus. I remember when I was uh, uh, in college, maybe grad school, I don't know, my dad had come down to South Carolina for a meeting not far away from the uh, campus where I was at. And uh, so he asked me to come and sing. And I, I'm not a soloist, but, you know, I was, I was taking voice lessons. I thought, you know what, I can do this. So uh, the song that my teacher had me working on was All That Throws My Soul is Jesus. And I remember standing there. Singing, and it was, the, it, was, it was a neat church. It was a little tiny building, so it was packed out. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm singing away, all oh, that throws my soul is Jesus. And I remember the thought went through my mind. It's not true. And it wasn't in those days. I didn't understand at all. But I'm going to tell you when God ignites truth in your heart and the Spirit imparts Jesus to you and through you, there is this amazing dynamic. And that's what happened in that great revival. And uh, uh, God became real and they were rejoicing in the Lord. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather or more glorious? But look at verse 9. The contrast continues here. For if the ministration of condemnation, you remember the law, death, be glory, much more. See the contrast? Doth the ministration, the ministry of righteousness, remember the spirit, life, exceed, there's another comparative word, in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. There it is again. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more. That which remains is glorious. Now look, words could not put this more emphatically. 
that though there was a glory to the law, because it's God's law, there is so much greater glory to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It so exceeds, it so excels, it's so much more. In other words, it so eclipses that former glory. It's going on to tell us, it's as if the former glory has no glory by reason of the glory that far outshines it, blinding light and glory. Now, friends, that's the biblical description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet for the last four decades, many have downplayed the role of the Holy Spirit. Because back in the 1970s, there were some that went to excess in the name of the Spirit. And the excesses were bad. I get that. But friends, to, to, to overreact is a tragedy. Because the Bible's telling us, look, this is this greater ministry of the Holy Spirit. You've got to get a hold of this. And so the devil wins if he can get people to be excessive on one side and then to be excessive the other direction on the other side. And our lack of understanding the role of the Holy Spirit has been killing us because what we've been left with is men eclipsing the role of the Holy Spirit and saying, uh, you know, you do this, you do this, and they're declaring the will of God for their people. When, wait a second, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads precisely, of course, based on the truth that he wrote. And we're hurting because of it. And there's a lack of life because of it. There's a deadening effect. Well, look at verse 12. It doesn't have to be that way. When you understand this is what God's done, seeing then that we have such hope. See, Jesus finished the work of the cross. And then he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then according to Acts chapter 2, he sat down on the right hand of the Father and he received the promise of the Spirit and he sent the Holy Spirit. And do you know the Holy Spirit has not been sent back yet? Which means we live in this age of the Holy Spirit. That is equivalent to the church age. But there's the point. It is the age of the Spirit. And so seeing then that we, <laughs> we have such hope. And that's not our word for wishful thinking. It's that word for confidence and expectation. Seeing that we have such confidence. I love this. We use great plainness of speech. We might say boldness of speech. Now please don't misunderstand me. Boldness is not brashness. Brashness is the flesh. Boldness is freeness of speech. It's being free to say what ought to be said, the way it ought to be said. Do you know when you and I are in step with Jesus, we're free to talk about Jesus? Not just in certain moments when we get all geared up for it, and thank God for that. That's important. But even when you're just going through life, you know, work and the marketplace and the grocery store. And there's these little moments where it could be a Jesus moment. And friends, when you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you just find yourself talking about Jesus. We're, we're free. We're unashamed. There's liberty. We're in the Spirit of the Lord. There's liberty. We're going to read that here in just a moment. So it's a wonderful reality. We use great boldness or freeness of speech. D.L. Moody. How many of you know the name D.L. Moody? From the past, the evangelist. Okay, many of you do. Um, 
I ask those questions because a lot of churches don't anymore. So I got to introduce people to some of these names uh, uh, from the past. But D.L. Moody, uh, that we're told, did not have much education. I think it was uh, through the fourth grade. Um, I do think he was brilliant, though, at any rate, uh, regardless. But nonetheless, he didn't have much formal education. And they say he slaughtered the king's English. Isn't it interesting that in the 1870s, he went to the king's land? That would be England. Uh, and uh, he goes to London, an intellectual center in the world, and he puts an ad in the paper challenging the Atheistic League of London. It was a specific 5,000-member league of atheists, the self-proclaimed intellectuals of that day. And he challenges them to come to such and such an auditorium on such and such a night and hear him preach. <laughs> Do you know that 2,000 atheists showed up? Can you imagine what this auditorium would be like, not, not just from just a, a physical standpoint, but the atmosphere, can you imagine what this service would be like if we added 2,000 atheists to the chemistry? Wow. And Moody got up and preached the gospel. And he gave an invitation, who will trust Jesus? Nobody moved. So he said to the ushers, you may open the doors. He looked at that audience. He said, anybody that would like to leave, you may leave. No one moved. So he grabbed his Bible and preached a second gospel message. Gave an invitation. Who will trust Christ? And one of the atheists pathetically said, I can't. I can't trust Jesus Christ. And uh, no one else moved. Moody said to the ushers, open the doors. Anybody like to leave, you may leave. Again, no one left. He preached a third gospel message. Can you imagine this? Gave an invitation. Who will put their trust in Jesus? And the leader... The leader of the Atheistic League of London stood up and in defiance said, I won't trust Jesus Christ. And D.L. Moody pointed his finger at that man and he looked at that audience and said, there's your leader. How many of you will follow him? <laughs> Nobody moved. He grabbed his Bible and preached a fourth gospel message. The text was the prodigal son. He gave an invitation 500 atheists were no longer atheists as they put their faith in Jesus. He kept preaching. The next several nights, more got saved, more got saved. Before it was all over, 2,000 out of 5,000 were born again, and it broke the back of the Atheistic League of London in that day. Now, is it obvious to us what's going on in light of what we've been looking at? What can motivate a man who did not use the English language well, who didn't have that much education, to challenge the intellectuals of the city of London to come on such and such a night and hear him preach? Is it not obvious that Moody understood that the sufficiency was not in D.L. Moody? And is it not also obvious he understood that sufficiency was in Almighty God? And thus, he could use great plainness or boldness or freeness of speech. Now, look, you and I may not have the calling of Moody. I get that. But you've got a calling. And you've got a place in God's kingdom work that nobody else can fulfill but you. And you and I cannot do it apart from the same sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. But with that sufficiency, yes, God will lead and enable you just like he led and enabled D.L. Moody. Let's read on. And not as Moses, verse 13, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So it says here, and not as Moses. In other words, in our, can I use the word dispensation, in our era and time, 
God does not want us to veil the radiance. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a physical radiance. It was a physical veil. In the New Testament, we live in the age of the Spirit, as we just noted. It's not physical. It's spiritual. But it's just as real as if it were physical. And again, and not as Moses, God does not want us to hide the Jesus glow. You see, Jesus moved in. Look, no other religion has the founder moving right into the very hearts of the followers. And the spirit of Jesus moved in to impart the life of Jesus to us. He moved in to live his life, not ours. And when we just kind of do our own thing, it's like putting a veil. When it's you save your life, you lose it. You're, you're putting a veil. You're robbing God of his glory. As Major Ian Thomas from Great Britain puts it, you're imprisoning the Son of God within your chest. When he moved in, that his beauty might shine out. And the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus is love. That's the fruit. And there's eight manifestations, joy, peace, all the way to temperance, all of that. That's the beauty of Jesus. That's holiness. That's the radiance. There's this aura. There's this Jesus look. And so it goes on, verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even under this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that's their heart, shall turn to the Lord, that's faith, the veil shall be taken away. Isn't that interesting? We would think the veil has to be taken away so the heart could turn to the Lord. And God has it the other way around. Why? Because it's by faith. The heart turns to the Lord in faith, and then the veil is taken away. Now, verse 17, the Lord is that spirit. Did you know the Holy Spirit is called Lord? Right there. So that means he is Lord along with the Father and the Son. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. I love this. Where the spirit is Lord, that is where he's yielded to as Lord, that's when there's liberty. See, when you're yielding to his leadership, when you're yielding to his power, he imparts the life of Jesus to you. And when he imparts the life of Jesus to you, you have the freedom to be and do what God wants you to be and do. You see, Christian liberty is not us doing what we want. It's us accessing Jesus, his, his will, his power, so that we do what he wants. Right. The preferences are not our preferences. They're his. And when we're yielding to him, when the spirit, uh, uh, where the spirit is Lord, when we're yielding to him as Lord, that's when we experience the liberty through faith, not works, in this living Jesus. And when that happens, verse 18, but we all with open face, just like a little child that has an open face, beholding, it's not a casual look, it's a careful look, as, as in a glass, a mirror. Now notice as, it's not actually looking in a mirror, it's like, it's as, it's like looking in a mirror. And there it says, we behold <laughs> the glory of the Lord. Now in James, the, the mirror idea is used, and there the mirror is the word of God which is a wonderful truth. As the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the truth connected to the words, you see Jesus. But I want us to see here the emphasis is, is you. It's, it's believers. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. That word changed is translated transformed in Romans 12 too. 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's translated transfigured in the Gospels. And you remember in the Gospels, Jesus, who because of the incarnation had set aside the glories of heaven to come into our world, but on the Mount of Transfiguration allowed that glory of his deity to shine, literally lighting up his outer clothing, is the indication of those texts. That's the word, transfigured. Who he was was manifested. Now here's, here's what's neat. Here the word is applied to you. God wants who you are to be manifested. You say, no, 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 I don't want anybody to know what's written in the closet. That's not what it's talking about. Who you are in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory. See, it's not a physical glow. It's spiritual, but it's just as real as if it were physical. The Jesus look. And friends, it's real. It's how Brother Andrew, God's smuggler, would have to meet with somebody on some corner behind the Iron Curtain. He's never seen him before, never met him before. This is before phones and pictures and oh, the easy way to do all that stuff. And they're just told, you got to, on such and such a day, show up in this corner. You know how they would find each other? The Jesus look. They would look for the glow. They would look for the shine. They would look for the beauty of Jesus. Now, friends, this is real. God wants this to be very manifest. He wants Jesus to be seen. Years ago, I was preaching in downtown San Francisco. And in those days, I had a fifth-wheel trailer, but I didn't, I didn't want to pull it downtown, so I stayed at the uh, church's prophet's chamber. And uh, John Jr., my son, was at the time just a toddler. And so to get him out of the building, you know, it was downtown San Fran. I, I'd put him in my arm, and we'd go down the street, and there's a Starbucks, you know, every other, <laughs> every other block about. And uh, I had my son trained in those days. If I stuck a gospel track in his hand, he would hand it to the nearest person. So that really got fun on the streets of San Francisco, I'll tell you. And uh, at Starbucks, it would start up some really neat conversations, gospel conversations. So it began a ministry for my son and I uh, that uh, we had for quite some uh, years called Starbucks Evangelism. <laughs> and so a couple of months later, I was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I told my wife one afternoon, I said, hey, I'm going to take John Jr. We're going to go to Starbucks for Starbucks Evangelism. Well, of course, that also means for a latte. But... <laughs> We walked in, and the young lady was working there. She's standing behind the counter. She looked up, smiled, and said, hello, may I help you? Now, when she did that, involuntarily, the thought went across my mind, she's a believer in Jesus. Now, it wasn't based on what she was wearing. I don't know what she was wearing. She's standing behind the counter. And, you know, it wasn't just that she smiled. Did you know that unsafe people can smile? <laughs> but there was a reflection See, this is what I'm talking about. There was this Jesus look. There was this glow. There was this radio. How do you, you know, you're dealing with the unseen and yet it's real. Well, we placed our order and I did the standard routine, put the gospel track in John's hand. John's hand, he holds it out to her. She grabs it and goes, oh, I'm a born again Christian too. And gave a clear testimony. I already knew. I remember being at a post office one time somewhere, I think out west, and it was packed out, and there were several different uh, workers there in the post office. And so I'm like from here over here to the wall, and there was a lady I've never seen in my life, and she was so aglow with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, she was so ashine with the beauty of Jesus. I said, i got to meet that lady. So I, I made sure it happened, and I said, ma'am, are you a born-again Christian? She said, well, well yes, but how, how did you know? You see, Moses wist not that his face shone. 
So if you're walking around thinking, man, everybody's seeing Jesus, they're not. <laughs> but when you're walking by faith and not by sight, others see what you can't. And there is this reality of Jesus. You say, is that really what it's talking about? Look at the next verse. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Look, when you understand the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to use deceitful tactics to fake ministry. No, there's power when there's the breath of heaven and the beauty of Jesus. Let me jump, because it talks verse 3 about the gospel being hid, about for time's sake, jump to verse 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to preach Christ? Most of us will say, well, you preach the gospel. Well, that's true. Is that all? I learned this from my dad. Friends, preaching Christ is not just preaching the message of Christ. It's that as you preach that message, you're so aglow with Jesus, the people you're talking to see the Jesus of the message. That's what gives it power. It's not how fancy you say it. It's not how eloquent you are. This is not based on your, you know, your winsomeness. Man, praise the Lord. It's not even based on your IQ. You know there's hope. <laughs> it's the attractiveness of Jesus. And friends, when you preach Christ and they see him, that's what gives the message power. He says, I really want to talk about, look at verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, the God of creation has shined, here it is, in our hearts. See where the mirrors, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now that's fascinating. Clay mirrors. You know, you don't make mirrors out of clay, which means whatever this is talking about is supernatural. And that's the point, because the next phrase says that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Friends, who do people see? See, even in the congregation here, much less the outside world, my father used to say it this way. Spirit-filled people are attracted to each other, and the attraction is Christ. So if you think you're not attractive, start walking in the Spirit. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. But the point is, there is this glow, there is this attraction, there is this Jesus reality. However, back to that opening story. If the mirror is dull, People don't catch the clear reflection. Do you know sin, not dealt with, smears the mirror? If you've got a bitter attitude, and there's always resentment and always just that bitterness coming out, that smears the mirror. It veils the Jesus reality in you. You know, if we're cursing and all that kind of stuff, responding just like the unsafe, that smears the mirror. You know, when you got the dirty closet, you know, sins going and they're just never dealt with, it dulls you, it messes everything up. People don't see Jesus. 
even if they don't know that you got a closet sin. Friends, do people see Jesus? If ever our world needed to see Jesus, friends, it's now. As the darkness gets thicker, there's an opportunity for light to shine brighter. But if we're just so selfish, we hang on to our grudges and hang on to our sins and hang on to our bitternesses and hang on to our anger and hang on to our irritation and all of that kind of stuff. It gets in the way. But friends, when you get honest, the blood of Jesus cleans you up. In other words, when you get honest without making excuses, God's blood, the blood of Jesus, cleans you up every time. And now you can go back to just following his leadership and trusting him and the spirit will impart Jesus to you and that's what our world needs to see. I have some dear friends. He's now with the Lord. Uh, his wife uh, is, uh, is Chinese. She was uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, they met here in the States, but her roots were China. So they went to China to take a three-week tour because of her background. Uh, this is some years ago now. And uh, they witnessed to their guide. They were in a group, and the guide was an atheist. Uh, and they witnessed to her for three weeks. At the end of the three weeks, the Chinese atheist guide said, you know, how do we know that your Jesus just isn't your form of our Confucius? And my friend said, because Jesus rose again from the dead. That's a good answer. The atheist said, how do you know? <laughs> That's a fair question. Now, historically, there have been infidels who've tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and gotten converted in the attempt. <laughs> it's a fact of history. But I love how this conversation went because the guy said, you know, three weeks ago when we all met, there's a good-sized group, I was somehow drawn to you two. And my friend's wife picked up on that. She said, oh, if you were drawn to us, there's nothing in us, in and of ourselves, for you to be drawn to. But Jesus lives in us. Remember, we're talking about how do you know he rose again. She said, Jesus lives in us. And she said, that's how you know he rose again. There was a long pause. And the guide said, you know, I believe you. Fifteen years ago, there was another born-again Christian in my group, and the same look that was in her eyes I see in your eyes. That's that Jesus look. That's the Jesus glow. And may we walk by faith in his leadership and power. And if there's a stumbling, deal with it immediately that the blood of Jesus cleans you up so that that Jesus shine, that Jesus radiance, that Jesus glow can be real in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, here in church, and to that unsaved world that desperately needs to see and know Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Thank you for your kind attention this morning.